Have you ever had a big question for God before? Maybe you and your spouse really wanted a child. And so you did everything that you could. It just didn't come easily for you. But you got pregnant. And you were so excited and you started flipping through baby name books and dreaming about nurseries and doing all that stuff. And then there was a miscarriage. And everywhere you look, even people that didn't seem to want to be parents were parents. And here was you and your spouse. And it just wasn't happening for you. So you were left wondering, how is it that God can be so good and let something so hard, something so bad, something so difficult as this happen to me or happen in his world? It's a big question. Maybe for you, you've sat in a college class or in a, at a high school lunchroom table, or maybe you've read an argument on the internet, or, 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 or perhaps it's, it's just the questions that have, have come as a result of your own reason and your own questions. And you're left wondering, wrestling, truly, is God there? Is God there? Is God real? Is God true? Or is this make-believe? Is this a legend? Is this a myth? It's a big question. Maybe there was a time when you were younger and you were filled with hope and aspirations and ambition and joy and laughter. But life has happened. And as life has happened, it has beaten all hope out of you. Your marriage hasn't went the way that you wanted it to go. Your children haven't went the way that you wanted them to go. Your health hasn't went the way that you wanted it to go. And you find your place in a place of total despair. And you hear Christians say things like, all things are going to work together for your good and for God's glory. And you genuinely doubt it. That's a big question. You know, throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, as we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see time and again people bring big questions to Jesus. Sometimes that comes in the form of a seeker, someone who's not really sure what to think about Jesus, neither negative nor positive, somebody like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Sometimes we see it in the form of a critic, somebody that wants to pin Jesus down or back Jesus into the corner like the Pharisees or the temple leaders. Sometimes it's the Jesus' own disciples and they're just grappling with these mega truths and having difficulty understanding. But they come to Jesus and they have big questions, heavy questions, weighty questions. But you know what we see in the life of Jesus? He never runs away from a question. He never runs away from a question. He never evades a question. He never ducks a question. That Jesus is not turned off by them. Jesus is not offended by them because Jesus is the truth. And being the truth, Jesus has nothing to hide. And so if you come to Jesus with a question, particularly in goodwill, and you have a question for Jesus and you, you, you genuinely need the answer to the question, you can bring that question to Jesus and you don't have to worry about Jesus ducking the question. You don't have to worry about Jesus being turned off by the question. You can bring big questions, hard questions, difficult questions to Jesus and Jesus being the truth will not be turned off to you by your question. It's part of his grace, his kindness, his mercy to sinners. And so over the next four weeks, that's what we're gonna be doing here. 
You're going to be asking some difficult questions, some, some hard questions of Jesus. We're going we're gonna to go straight to the Bible and say, all right, Jesus, here, here's, here's some questions that we have. Here's some hard things that we have to ask you. Can you help us with them? I'm not going to begin to tell you that every, every answer is going to be totally intellectually satisfying. But what I am going to tell you is that what we can say is that we can go to the Scriptures and it does not dodge any of the worldview issues that we have. The question I want us to ask this morning is how is it that we can know that the Christian God is greater than all other gods? How is it that we can know that the Christian God is greater than all other gods? We might rephrase that question to ask it like this. Why can't all the gods just get along? Why can't the Muslim God and Buddhist enlightenment and the Eastern gods and Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons, why can't all the gods in all the world just, just get along and everybody just agree to disagree a little bit and just move about our merry way? So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're used to coming and being a part of, of kind of what we do here, it's going to be a little bit different over the next few weeks. We're going to, typically, we go to one text, we stick to that text, we, we, we unpack that text, but we're going, to, we're going to jump around a little bit over the next few weeks, and I think that's okay. I think that's going to be, it's going to be healthy. We're going to work hard to do that diligently and properly, but I think that's going to be okay. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 12. When you get there, would you stand with me? the honor of reading God's word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 12. We'll read through verse 19 together. God's inerrant and all-sufficient word says this. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Very often I've heard well-meaning Christians in discussions with non-believers, perhaps atheists, agnostics, get to be in discussion with them about the faith. And I believe in a genuine, honest desire to win them to the faith, and they get to a point of exasperation, right? And, and I would just say, if, when you get to the point of exasperation, it's probably time to, to leave that discussion for a future day. But they get to the point of exasperation, and they, and they get to this point, and they usually articulate a final argument that goes something like this. All right, if you're wrong, or if you're right, and I'm wrong, then you've gained nothing, and I've lost nothing. But if I'm right and you're wrong, then I've gained everything and you've lost everything. And I understand what they're trying to say. And I understand the the well-intentioned, the good intentions behind the sentiment. But I think that's a problematic argument. And I think that's a problematic argument on at least two fronts. First of all, 
Jesus in the Gospels tells us that if we are going to come after him, we are going to come after him and we are going to count the cost. We're going to count the cost and we're going to identify that Jesus is so far greater than anything else that we can find in this world. So far greater than in fact our own lives that we will willingly lay down our lives, leave behind all the treasures of this world to begin running after him with all of our lives. So in other words, Jesus not a single time in the gospels ever tells us, come and follow me just in case I'm right. Come and follow me just in case I really am God. Come and follow me just in case I really am the Savior. The only way that you can come to Jesus just in case is if you want to check something off the box. If you want to just have some kind of like fire insurance for the afterlife. But that is not going to allow you to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. You cannot inspire someone to surrender the entirety of their life by giving a just-in-case argument. The second problem I see with this argument is that it's not true. It's not true. It's half true, but being half true, it's entirely not true, right? It's not true because of what Paul says. Here's what, here's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then all of us are wasting our lives. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then I will not be raised from the dead. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then Jesus is not God. And if Jesus is not God, then Jesus is not my Savior. And if Jesus is not my Savior, then I am still in my sin. And this life is all that I have. And us Christians who are living for a future life, who are living for a future inheritance and a future reward and giving up this life now, we are most to be pitied. You see, to be a Christian... If Jesus is not true and Jesus has not been raised from the dead, it means that you have wasted the only true resource that you have, this life. If Jesus has not been raised and Jesus is not God, then you should eat, drink, and be merry. You should make the most of these 80 years because there is no eternity afterward. This is as good as it gets. So the question that's before us this morning is, is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Is Jesus Savior? Has Jesus been raised from the dead? Can he genuinely save us from our sins? Can he really deliver us from our own sin? Can he really give us eternal life? Is that true or not? You know, I think before we answer that question, we've got to answer a more fundamental question, a more foundational question. The most, the fastest growing religious classification in America is what we call the nuns, okay? Now, I don't want you to think, when I say nuns, don't think about the, the, the sweet Catholic ladies with the cool hats, okay? Um, I'm, I'm talking about people, when you do a census, you check, like, your religious affiliation, right? And these are the people that check none, none. Atheist, agnostic, I, I don't believe that there is a God. Um, if there is a God, I've never come across him, and so I'm just going to put none, Right? So this is the fastest growing religious segment in the Western Hemisphere at this point. And so, I, so, so what we first need to establish is whether or not there is a God at all. And I believe that if we stop for just a second and we think rationally and logically that we would have to acknowledge that with the evidence that we have, it is most plausible, it is most reasonable, it is most rational and logical to say that there is a God rather than there isn't a God. I'm going to make three, three arguments, although we can, we can certainly make more, but for the time's sake, I'm just going to make three. 
The first argument that I would make would be that the belief of God is instinctive to man. The belief of God is instinctive to man. That if you go throughout history, and you go to the very earliest civilization, throughout every ancient civilization, you know what we find at the beginning of every single one of them? Some religious system. Some acknowledgement of God. That if you look at the earliest art, and you look at the earliest music, and you look at the earliest writings, what is the earliest art and the earliest music and the earliest writings all about? It's all about God. They may not have the true God, they may not have found the right God, but they have some understanding, some reflex, some instinct that says, hey, there's something bigger than me. There must be a designer. There must be a founder. There must be a builder. There's something out there to whom I am answerable. There is someone out there that is grander than me. There is, I am a part of a bigger and grander plan. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us why. It says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. That, he, that God has put something inside of us that tells us different than the animal kingdom, different than, you know, that's why you don't drive by and see a flock of goats worshiping the Lord, right? They are not made in the image of God. God has not placed eternity into their hearts. That God has shown them. Not, God has not shown them. God has placed it in our hearts so that we know there is an instinct, a reflex in us. In fact, to not believe in God is a learned behavior. It's a learned behavior. You have to be enlightened and educated out of the belief of God, out of the understanding of God. It is only since the enlightenment that we have gotten there. If you ask a child, where did all this come from? They're going to tell you, God put it there, unless someone has told them otherwise and educated them otherwise. The second argument that I would make is that the world exists. The world exists. This is what we would call the cosmological argument, right? The first law of thermodynamics is one of the very pillars of science. It says that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only change forms, right? In other words, it's common sense, right? Like zero times zero cannot equal infinite everything, right? Like you you can't take nothing, multiply it times nothing, and get all that exists. There has to be original matter. There has to be original energy for all that you see to be. That you can't, you can't take nothing and make everything. And so that means that there has to be an original source. A couple of weeks ago, there was a, a brilliant man named Stephen Hawking that passed away, a scientist, right? And one of the discoveries that Stephen Hawking is credited with is the realization that all of, Earth, all of the universe originated from a single point of singularity. That is, that the entire, earth, the entire universe, not the earth, the entire universe, much grander than the earth, started and originated from a single speck. And with great force, and with great, uh, great energy, all of the universe has expanded out since the Big Bang from that very speck. This is what the Bible teaches, is it not? That God spoke. And with a big bang, all that was came into being. That God preceded the earth with as an eternal source. That he is the beginning and the end. That he is the source of matter. And he is the source of energy. In fact, Dr. Hawking would spend the majority of his life searching and researching philosophically string theory and black holes, trying to find the origination of that speck trying to find the origination of that singularity to no avail, to no effect, even acknowledging in his 1988 book that it must be that there is some possibility that there is a God before him, something he would try in the 90s and 2000s to dismiss. 
But common sense, rationale, and reason tells us there has to be a source. Not only is there a universe, though, but the final argument I would make is that there is order in this universe, isn't there? Look around. You know, one of my treasured, maybe my very favorite earthly possession is my truck, okay? I love driving my truck. I like, yesterday, my family and I, we got away to the National Forest. I swerved to hit every mud hole I could hit. I rolled down the windows. I know we were sucking in pollen, but I was loving it, and we were living the dream. It was a beautiful day. The breeze, you know, the whole deal, like that is a dream day, right? And what I know about my truck is that a tornado did not swing, did not swirl across Bubba's auto salvage and piece together a truck that can shift its own gears, that can be climate controlled, that I can turn a knob and enter into four-wheel drive, that I can turn another knob and turn on the Alabama game, and I can drive down the road, push a button, windows go up and down, push another button, it'll stop, push another button, it'll go faster. Now, I know, even though I've never seen it, even though I've never met them, even though I've never been where they are, I know that there's an engineer that designed it, I know there's the design. I know there's a factory. I know there's a plant where there were workers that put it together and built it. I've never seen them. I've never met them, but I know that they are there. How do I know that they are there? Because I know trucks, as they are, don't just appear. I can look and I can see how seamless it is. I can see how it's put together. I can see how perfectly it functions and operates. And I can look at it and I can know that's no accident. Man, look around you. Look around you. You breathe out carbon dioxide. Plants breathe in carbon dioxide. Plants breathe out oxygen. You breathe in oxygen. Could you have pulled that off? Could you have pulled that off? Do you think that's a random organization of all different kinds of molecules that started in a mud puddle and through this chaotic windstorm that happened over billions of years. Here we are flying 747 multi-ton jets to the other continents on the other side of the world. Do y'all think that's how it happened? It's implausible. It's irrational. It's illogical. It's most plausible to say that there's an engineer, that there's a designer, that there's a source of energy, that there's a source of material behind the entire design of the thing. So maybe you would say, I'll grant you that, man. I'll grant you that behind the, that, that, that it's most plausible, most reasonable that there is a God, but my issue comes in when you say that your God is greater than all other gods. Can't all the gods just get along? My issue comes in when you say that the Christian God is greater than the Muslim God, is greater than the Mormon's God, is greater than... Buddhist, Buddhist enlightenment, like my issue comes in when you start making those kinds of cases. You see, we, we live in a pluralistic society. And what we want to think, the, the reason that I think we, we use is, is that there must be like one God and like he's the source of all of these different religions. And if there's one God that's the source of all these different religions, they must all be okay in his eyes in some way. So they're all going to kind of lead to him in the end. But here's the issue. They all, if you follow them and you devote yourself fully to them, they totally contradict themselves. They totally contradict themselves. So they can't all be true. 
Because if you, if, you, if you devote yourself wholeheartedly to all of them, they all say, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right, only this is right. They can't be all be true any more than two plus two can't equal four and five. Or green can't be both green and blue. Listen to what the God of the Bible says. He says this in Exodus twenty two twenty. Listen to what he says. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You know what he says? I'm unwilling to share you. I'm unwilling to share your affection. If you devote yourself to any other God, if you give your eye to any other God, you will be devoted to destruction. That all of the other gods are liars to you. All of the other gods will lead you astray. I love you, and I love you supremely, and I have given myself to you. It cannot be that you can love this God and another God because this God has said that that is unacceptable. So what he says in in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what Jesus says is the very greatest commandment in all of the Bible. Jesus says all other commandments are encompassed in this single commandment. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love that Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That the single Lord of all of the universe, not your choice, not the smorgasbord of religions, but the single Lord of Israel, the God of the universe, the one who created and spoke and set all of it into motion. He is the Lord your God, and you must love him with a single-mindedness and a single-heartedness and a single-bodiedness that is unrivaled in comparison to any other God. He is unwilling to share your devotion and unwilling to share your heart. It cannot be that the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran or the God of the Book of Mormon is the same God. It cannot be. Because this God says if you worship any of those, you've devoted yourself to destruction. So either he's wrong or they are wrong. Do you know one of the fault lines, you may not realize this, one of the fault lines among most of the major religions, you ever thought about this, is Jesus. One of the fault lines among most of the major religions, is Jesus. That that Jesus has been such an impactful figure in history. And not just history, but in religious history, that Jesus has been such an uh, an impactful person in history that most of the major world religions have had to find some way to deal with him. And when they deal with him, they don't dismiss what he said. They may reinterpret what he said. They may reimagine what he said. They may recalibrate what he said. But they don't dismiss what he said because he said it, right? If you go to the Quran, did you know that you would find Jesus in the Quran? Did you know that? That Jesus is in the Quran. That Muslims believe that Jesus is a faithful servant of Allah. They do not believe that he is the Son of God. They do not believe that he is God himself. They do not believe that he died on the cross. They believe he went comatose on the cross. They just believe that he was a faithful servant. You cannot believe your New Testament. You cannot believe any fragment of Christianity and believe the Quran. It's a fault line of world religion. You follow, uh, if you look at Jehovah's Witness, what Jehovah's Witnesses believe or what Mormons believe. You know what they believe? They don't believe that in a Trinitarian God the way Christians believe. They don't believe that Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father. They believe that Jesus is the greatest part of creation, but that Jesus is created by God. 
that Jesus is simply a son of God, made by God, that Jesus himself is not God. Mormons go so far to say that Jesus is the better eldest brother of Satan himself and that you should follow in the way of Jesus so that you can have a greater reward like Jesus did and not follow his naughty brother and get destruction like Satan did. That does not sound anything like the Bible. You cannot believe both. Followers of the Jewish religion, they believe that Jesus is a heretic that has led many faithful Jews astray and will condemn you down to Sheol for blasphemy. That's why they executed him. You cannot believe both. It cannot be. What do Christians believe? What do we believe at Iron City Baptist Church? What is it that I have given my life to preaching? What is it that men and women throughout the last 2,000 years of church history have said, I am willing to die for? We believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. We will not renegotiate. We will not reimagine. We will not reinterpret his words to mean other than what he has said. We will not try to change them. We will not try to manipulate them to make him a servant, to make him lesser than God. Because here is what Jesus said. Jesus said, when you have seen the Father, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the God of the Old Testament. Maybe that's a shocking reality. So I want want you to turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Maybe you've never heard that claim before, that Jesus says, I am the God of the Old Testament. The very same God that says that you must devote yourself to me with a single-mindedness and a single-heartedness and a single-bodiedness. There's many examples that we could use, but I wanted to use John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 22. By the way, even people that don't like Jesus dismiss Jesus or believe that Jesus was just a man, they believe that Jesus actually said this. They believe that Jesus really believed that he was God. They disagree with him. They just believe that, but they really believe, critical scholars, they believe that Jesus really believed that he was God. We are left to realize, to decide whether he is crazy or he is true. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22, this is what it says. Read with me. At that time, The feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I gave them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. He says, I and the Father are one. When you've read the words of the Old Testament, you've read about me. You've read about me. 
All of the Old Testament bears witness about me. It's talking about me. It's me talking to you. I and the Father are one. Now maybe you would say, now wait, easy Cody, easy preacher, easy. You're just, you're changing the context. We don't have the full context of the culture. We don't know exactly what's happening there. Except that the people who are there, who you would have to grant me, know the context better than we could ever know the context, and understand it better than we could ever understand it, they heard what Jesus was saying, and they began to pick up rocks to cave his face in. For what reason? Because Jesus was equating himself with God. For blasphemy! See, this man believes that he is God! Maybe, you, you're, maybe the question in your mind is this. Okay, that's what Jesus said, but how do we know that's true? How do we know that's true? What confidence do we have that Jesus wasn't crazy? What, what, what confidence do we have that Jesus wasn't just some loon like the guys on death row or, or some guy that deserved to be in a padded room with coloring books somewhere? Like, like what, what, what confidence do we have that Jesus really was God? Let me just point you to two things. First of all, Jesus was exactly who the Bible said he would be. Jesus was exactly who the Bible said he would be. See, the Old Testament was, the, the written accounts, they're about 400 to 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, okay? The oral tradition even predates that. Books like Job, much older than even that from the oral tradition. They were written down 1,500 years, right? So, so you got 400 years for the youngest book before Jesus to 1,500 years, like books like Genesis, that are much older than the time of Jesus, right? Within those four, within those, the books of the Old Testament, there, Josh McDowell says there are some 333 uh, prophecies about who the Messiah would be. And so maybe you're hearing that, and you're thinking in your mind, okay, but here's what happened, preacher. Like, like Jesus, he just read the Old Testament really, 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 really well, and he manipulated all of those prophecies so that they would be about him. He manipulated them so that they would testify about him so that he could go back and say, look, I'm the Messiah. Look, I am the one that you've been waiting on. First of all, would you not expect the Son of God, God himself, to live in submission to his own word? Second of all, there are prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that he would have had no authority over as a human. If he was just a human, he would not have been able to fix it, okay? So his genealogy, I, how many of y'all were able to determine your ancestry? Did y'all, did y'all, were y'all able to master that? Because I would have, I, I don't know, I, I, I love my family, I would have been rich. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're going to fix that on the front end, right? Uh, how, many of y'all, how many of y'all could have determined that you would have been born of a virgin? That's pretty cool. Did y'all, did y'all fix that, right? Like y'all, did y'all figure that out, right? How, how, many of y'all, how, how many of y'all got to decide that y'all were going to be born in Bethlehem? Jesus pulled that off, right? Like, you know, I love where I live now. I'm just saying as a sinner on that side of eternity... I might have chosen, chosen New York. I might have chosen like some, some cosmopolitan place, you know. Like now, I don't want to go there. But then, you know, who knows, right? All of those things perfectly aligned for Jesus, right? Right? Jesus perfectly fulfills all of these prophecies. And he does it in such a way that it brings divine 
providence into perfect submission to the word of God so that it is undeniable. Did you know that Isaiah says that he will be born of a virgin and then later on says that he will die as a suffering servant? Did you know in Micah it says that he will be, he will be born in the city of Bethlehem? Did you know that, that in the Psalms it says that he will die because he is pierced and that is, that is hundred, written hundreds of years before Roman crucifixion is even invented? You know what the chances are? Somebody, so a mathematician, he did the odds on what it would be for one man to fulfill just eight of these. Just eight of these, okay? Jesus fulfilled hundreds, hundreds, all right? A mathematician, he just did, he, he did the odds on what it would be if a man just fulfilled eight. One, 100, or one, one in 100 million billion. One in 100 million billion, all right? So if you're like me, I can't see that number, okay? I can't see that number. So here's what that number would look like. If you took the state of Texas and you stacked up silver dollars two feet deep over the entire state of Texas and you took one silver dollar and you marked it and you placed it right in the middle of the state of Texas and then you sent a blind man to walk right into the middle of the state of Texas and he reached down on his first attempt and picked up the coin that you marked. That are the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. And Jesus Christ fulfilled hundreds of them. I don't even think that's the most convincing argument. I don't even think that's the most convincing argument. Because you see, Jesus told his disciples, he says, I am going to die, but in three days I will rise. He is Babe Ruth pointing to the center field bleachers and he hits it and sends it out of the stadium because Jesus is scourged at the pole. He is nailed by seven inch nails to a cross and then he goes to the belly of the earth on Friday night, on Saturday, but then on Sunday the earth shakes and the stone is rolled away and the, and the, and the soldiers are put to sleep. The grave cloths fall away and out comes Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a question? What other God has done that? What other God has done that? Is there another book that can bear witness to a God like that? Can the Quran claim that? Can the wisdom of Buddha claim that? Maybe you'd say, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It doesn't make sense to me. Seems irrational. You keep talking about plausibility and irrational, except that Jesus is the dividing edge of history. And brother, let me tell you, one day he will be the dividing edge of eternity. Let me tell you some of the things that give me confidence. Some of the things that give me confidence. Maybe in your mind you would say you believe like the Muslim that, that he was comatose on the cross. That he just passes out. And so the Romans believe that he is dead, but he's really not dead. Here's what you have to believe, to, to believe that. This is what your faith, this is, this is the plausibility. This is, this is what you believe is plausible. That Jesus goes and he is, he is given 39 lashes of scourging. The scourging is so brutal that very often men are not able to survive it. Medical doctors that have evaluated Jesus' condition by the accounts that we have have said that Jesus was very near death by the account that we have because of the shock that he is in. Often as a result of the scourging, parts of the spine and the intestines were exposed. 
Jesus is in such shock as a result of the scourging that he says that his body is too weak and too faint to be able to carry his crossbar. Something that ordinarily a man like him in good physical condition who walked everywhere that he went would have been able to do. He goes to Golgotha. They now seven-inch spikes through his wrists and through his feet, through some, through some of the most sensitive nerve areas in the entire body. As he was jolted into his place on the cross, his shoulders would have immediately separated. He would have had to pull up on the nails through these nerve endings, on those dislocated shoulders, to be able to gasp for air, only to go back down. He would have done that until he was too, too tired and in too much pain. From what we can tell, he was already severely dehydrated by this point from the blood loss. Having sweat, even great drops of blood the night before. Before long, he is declared dead by a Roman executioner who, by the way, it was their job to kill people. They were good at what they did. But just to make sure, a Roman soldier took a spear and thrust it into the side of Jesus. And the accounts that we have say that blood and water began to flow out of his side. So let's just suppose that maybe he did survive. It would have been practically impossible to have survived it, but just just in case he did. Then we would have to believe that he would have been wrapped in grave cloths prepared for burial, which would have weighed about 100 pounds, and it would have been enough to have smothered him anyway. He would have been placed behind a tomb that would have rolled, the stone would have rolled downhill and been permanently cemented into its place. He would have then had to remove all of the grave cloths from himself with dislocated shoulders in a weakened state. He would have been in a tomb with no food, no water, already badly beaten, already very weak, No warmth, no help. He would have to move the gravestone by himself, slip past professional Roman centurion guards to go to the disciples and then convince him that he had actually been raised from the dead and was not just some weakling that had managed to slip by. Y'all, that sounds more like Jack Bauer than Jesus. And not even the most critical scholars, people that don't believe in Jesus, have believed that for more than 200 years. So maybe you would say, well, I believe in what the, what the Jews think. I believe that the disciples wanted to get this thing rolling, and so they went and they stole the body of Jesus. They went and they stole the body of Jesus so they could put together all their plans. Except the disciples, they denied Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus. The accounts that we have say, that they actually went about their ordinary Jewish observance. They were going to go ahead and, and continue on with past tradition. They even sent the women to go. That was, was extraordinary. If they would have believed it, let me tell you, Peter, the leader of the disciples, would have been at the front of the line. But let's just suppose that they did try to steal it. Can I ask you, what did they have to gain? What did they have to gain? Would you be willing to die for a lie? Would you be willing to die for a lie? Would you be willing to watch your wife be crucified for a lie that you and your buddies made up? Would you be willing to watch people that you love be covered in hot wax and lit as torches in Nero's garden for a lie that you made up? 
Not only that, would you be able to get all of your buddies in such agreement with you that there would not be a single leak, not a single crack, not a single person's conscience who would turn on them? Would you be willing to go and die a martyr's death yourself? Would you be willing to go and face down the Sanhedrin time and again? Would you be willing to go hungry? Would you be willing to lose your livelihood? Would you be willing to lose everything that's ever mattered to you in your entire life for something that you knew was all made up? Because that was the lives of the apostles from that day forward. When the apostles and the other 500 men that Paul saw talk about in 1 Corinthians 15, when they laid their eyes on Jesus, something clicked with them. What they saw they knew was different than what they had seen before. And all of the doubt that they had had before, all of the insecurity that they had had before, it was vanquished so that cowardly men became courageous martyrs that bore witness to the ends of the earth that started a meeting that now on this day, 2,000 years ago, we come together to hail the name of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, I'm telling you, that's no myth. That's no legend. That is the result of a risen Christ. And so I ask you this morning, what will you do with the one who was raised from the dead? What will you do with the one who was raised in the dead, from the dead? Because this morning by faith, you will believe somebody. You will either by faith put your tra- trust in your own intellect and your own ability to use sound logic and good rationale and good scientific theory, or you will put your faith in the Christ who was raised from the dead. He is the dividing edge of history, and He will be the dividing edge of all eternity. And let me tell you, one way or the other, whatever you decide, you cannot be indifferent and you cannot be ambivalent. You must decide, and you must decide wholeheartedly. You cannot come to him and say, I just want to check a box. I just want to just encase it. No, you must come. And if you want this Christ, if you want the life that he offers, and the joy that he offers, and the mercy that he offers, you must surrender the entirety of your life because he is the treasure that is worth all of your life for the rest of your life. So this morning, if you do not know this Christ, if you have not trusted this Christ, give him your life give him all of it give him every inch of it give him your family give him your marriage give him your ambition give him your passion give him your dreams give him your fears give him your insecurities give him your life come to Christ and find rest come out of your burdens come out of your insecurities come out of your fears come to the resurrected Christ and be set free Let's pray together.